From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of the campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Rolling into episode 10 of the Campfire Conversations. This, I, I just sit back and listen. This was wicked. I, as, as somebody who is brand new to mushroom foraging, I found like shaggy manes and a couple of morels. This, I, I just sat back and listened. This was great. Yeah, well, I can't believe we're on episode 10 already. They're in the double digits now, Steve. That's uh, it's pretty amazing. It's gone by quickly. But uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I've been... Uh, getting into mushroom foraging now over the last few years, I, I probably started fairly seriously into it about six years ago. And uh, so I'm part of the Kootenai Mushroom Forum. And I, you know, once the mushroom season starts rolling in, I, I follow that group fairly closely because there's a lot of really knowledgeable people uh, on that forum. And, and, and Tyson is the tip of the spear. I mean, he's the, anything that he posts, I read because because he's the, you know, quote unquote guru on, on mushrooms in this area and, and probably other areas as well. But, uh, you know, to, to have him on the podcast, it was a real privilege. This guy, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's a true expert, you know, he's a true expert. And, uh, uh, it was nice to be able to talk to him about, uh, mushroom and mushroom foraging and, and some of the stuff he's interested in. And yeah, I, I learned a lot and, and, uh, uh, as was mentioned at the, uh, oh, I don't know. I actually don't know if you've mentioned it at the podcast. Maybe it was after, but we're going to be doing a, a little mushroom foraging together this spring, mm -hmm. hopefully. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm sure I'll learn a ton more when I'm actually out in the field with him. Oh, what I liked is you. You could tell he knew every Latin name and all the the taxonomy, and he could have just ranted that out there but he broke it down so somebody like me who's a complete mushroom idiot was able to understand it and relate to it so it's this is this isn't an episode that's gonna rattle brains on how scientific it was it's one of those oh well that makes sense and i, I love the way you can see his passion for for slime mold it sounds it it doesn't sound appealing or appetizing but he he makes it sound fun. And I, I know now what I've seen in some of the forests that I've, I've walked through. They, oh, okay, that's a slime mold. And I can take a little bit more of a, a, a harder look next time. And I know I'll be doing that because uh, you, you walk through, walk by so many mushrooms at this time of year and, and throughout the fall and as hunting and just exploring. And now there's a new set of eyes, we'll say, looking at it. And I thought that was, that, that was pretty cool. So great episode, yeah. I think. It was, yeah. And it, what I found interesting was I've, I'm a biologist and for some reason, I always thought slime molds were fung, fungi. And uh, he corrected and said, no, they're amoeb amoebas. And uh, yeah. that just absolutely blew my mind. And I should have probably known that. And, and I probably was, that's probably the, one of the days I skipped in my classes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, the, the thing about having a, a conversation with a guy like Tyson is, and you're exactly right, Steve, is the next time we're a field and we're seeing some of these, you know, these different fungi or slime molds uh it's gonna have a little bit more meaning i mean fungi already did to me but uh you know i, I just feel like i learned quite a bit and I'm, I'm hoping the people that listen to this will will learn something as well what i really thought was cool is he, he digs into it a little bit and even as a forager it shows that connection we all share and that tie to the landscape that it, it it's not just hunters 
that care passionate passionately about the wildlife and habitat. You could hear how he gets into into it in the podcast about why it's so important and how certain practices are affecting foraging. So yeah, it's there, there's so much that interconnects people that are in into the outdoors. That's right. You know that you know as as you know you and I are both fairly uh involved in the conservation of wildlife we're we're active with the wild sheep society of bc and other organizations as well and you know we tend to look at habitat disruption on how it affects wildlife um and fisheries actually i think about that quite a bit as well uh but i and and i think i i've thought about it more regarding fungi and like mushrooms since i've started foraging them but i would say for the average person person that's just something we don't think about right and uh you know, it just makes me realize that as we move forward in in uh, managing our landscapes, there's so many things we have to take into account. You know, our fisheries, our wildlife, our, our you know, the plants, the animals, the the, the fungi, the insects, you know, all these things that that are interconnected, and and we not none of these things exist in isolation, and they all they all exist in this incredibly complex web of life. And and you know, talking to him just sort of really brings that home. Absolutely, it does. So, well, this this episode goes what damn near an hour and twenty. Yeah, it, it's, it, it by, went by on. By the time you blinked, it was like, oh yeah. wow. Holy. Well, and I, I, at the end there, I said, well, we better wrap it up. I was thinking because it's getting so long, but I, I'm sure, like so many of our other, our other podcast episodes, you know, if if time wasn't the issue, we could we could talk for hours. Oh yeah. So, without further ado, this is episode ten of the Campfire Conversations. Enjoy. The perception of hunting, you know, ha has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying, you know, espousing that, that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, we've, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side we have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. Okay, well, this is a, a pretty special uh, episode of our podcast. Uh, tonight we have Tyson Ellers. Am I saying your last name correctly? Ellers, Ehlers in Canada. Uh, Ehlers, okay, perfect. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, well, this is episode 10 of our Campfire Conversations. And, uh, you know, uh, Tyson and, and I have been going back and forth. It's, you know, we've been trying to get Tyson uh, nailed down for a time. He's a busy man, and, and we really appreciate him taking the time to uh, – uh, talk with us tonight. And uh, uh, so Tyson is an expert on mushrooms and fungi. And uh, I think we're going to learn a lot tonight. So welcome, Tyson. So Steve and I are very happy to have you here. Uh, I guess we'll just start by asking you, like, who you are, what do you do, where you live, just sort of the normal introductory type stuff. Can you uh, give us a bit of a brief overview of that? Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks uh, for having me on this program. This is the uh, sounds really cool what you guys are doing here, and uh, and uh, you know, privileged to be part of it. Uh, yeah, as you said, I'm I'm into mushrooms, 
and fungi. Well, fungi, 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 depends where you're from. Uh, it doesn't really matter how you pronounce them. I tend to uh, adopt the maybe West Coast American pronunciation of fungi. Um, and uh, I've been interested in mushrooms uh most of my life, I, it started with foraging with my mom when I was a, a little kid, just finding shaggy manes in the driveway. Uh, of course, I, I didn't, as like every other kid, I didn't want to eat them. Um, <laughs> but uh, maybe even before that, it was uh, finding asparagus, you know, in the Okanagan. I grew up in the southern Okanagan, and there was lots of feral asparagus. So foraging was always a big part of my um my uh my drive in in life i just uh it's it's like the great easter egg hunt um to go out and find these rewards even if i didn't per se want them myself to consume them i other people did and uh and i saw that i saw that value eventually that translated into uh um you know a curiosity for everything around me i was always collecting bugs and, and uh, reptiles. I was a biologist when I was six, and eventually I became a professional biologist. I made a career out of doing what I did when I was six. I think that's pretty um, pretty satisfying when you can, you can find your true um, drive. And uh, yeah, then like every other young man in you know, the university ages or with an adventurous uh, spirit, it was, well, I want to find things that get me high and uh it was the psychedelic mushrooms growing on the boulevards at the university of british columbia now in those days this was the early 90s we didn't have a lot of uh information readily uh at hand you'd go to the ubc library and all of the uh psilocybe pages would have been torn out of the only two books they had you know so it was word of mouth and um and whatever, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever publications one could get, and then to to confidently identify a, a psilocybin mushroom that you want to eat, um, you need to be really sure because they're little brown, fairly indistinguishable mushrooms that have um, that have identifiable features. But you need to know, you need to learn the glossary. You need to know the anatomy of a mushroom first. So I, I can say that, and I think a lot of uh, uh, you know, um, mycologist, professional mycologist uh, of my generation did learn a lot from just trying to get high. <laughs> but I also learned a lot of respect and I was very cautious about it. And I, I, I adopted the rule of never eat anything unless you're 100% sure of its identity. Uh, I've never, ever been poisoned or sickened by consuming a wild mushroom. Um you know, I have a European background and, you know, my constitution <laughs> maybe is, is okay for uh, uh, resisting some of these, uh, you know, uh, these are just little bags of chemicals, you know, fungi. So um, there's all sorts of rules of thumb about, about harvesting and, uh, well, uh, things you, you should just adhere to in, in before you consume any of these. And one is to, n the number one is to be 100% sure of what you've found. And so to get there in those days took a lot of study. And, uh, and so then it just became, uh, like a lot of things I did in life, uh, an obsession through the years to where I became a commercial mushroom picker and I applied my, my forestry, uh, knowledge cause I have a degree in forestry and, uh, I was 
um, I was always an ecologist in that side of things, uh, more so than, you know, the, the timber side of things. Although I, you know, I, I worked in that as well. So it gave me a background in forestry and, and, and that allowed me to interpret, to read the land, to um, understand what uh, drives the species across the landscape. So pine mushroom was, was the one I really uh, um, did a lot of work with and, and, got some contracts with uh, government and um, was out doing some of the early work on describing the ecological characteristics of pine mushroom habitat. So having all that, uh, knowing the exact, uh, uh, the ecological relationships, the tree species, the, the ages, the, the, the site types, um, I just put in a lot of R&D and it was about 94, I went up north and there was a, that was when pine mushrooms were going for hundreds of dollars a pound and my very first day out and I was a tree planter then too. So I was fit and I could cover ground and I wasn't afraid of, uh, you know, going out into the, into the bush by myself. And, but I had a, a buddy up there who was a good picker and, uh, he showed me the ropes and my first day I made $800 and I was hooked. I mean, cash, you go, you come out of the, it's hard work, right? You come out all scraped and bruised and, and, uh, dehydrated and uh some sketchy little incandescent light lit you know shed on the side of a highway up in hazelton you know and this gruff dude comes out and you know and everyone bitches all oh, they're only four hundred dollars a pound for number ones today you know that was then <laughs> whatever it was you know it was it was uh i was hooked i i was making uh, uh you know i made more money than i'd ever made in a single day of tree planting Mind you, then there were, uh, you know, uh, days afterwards of no money <laughs> and no mushrooms. You know, it is with mushrooms, it's hit and miss um, in quality and all of those issues. Uh, to the point now, fast forward, whatever, almost 30 years later, I still go out, but I, I'm happy to just make a couple hundred bucks to pay for some gas and a hut burger, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, a bit of, <laughs> maybe offset. My goal used to be to pay what... Uh, it cost me to buy firewood because I'd much rather go pick mushrooms than, uh, than get firewood. And, uh, and I could, if I had more time, but, um, so yeah, I mean the commercial picking side, I did that and I did commercial morel picking. Um, and through that, I, I, I just honed my ecological knowledge even more and, uh, and, and my mushroom identification skills. So I was able to, um, uh, not only, um, you know, just, just be a single species kind of focused picker, but I never really was. I, that's why I'm not a really good picker because I'll spend just as much time photographing some unknown tricholoma as, uh, as I should be out there filling baskets with the one species. But, um, uh, it, uh, it led to knowledge. And then with the internet, I mean, I was part of the, what was it called? The OMC, the online mycological community. You remember the yeah, Usenet or whatever those those, those uh, listservs, those groups, you know, that right. be before you know, social media was really a thing in the late '90s with our dial-up modems. Um, don't load any photos, please. I can't handle it. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and it was a neat community because it was really uh, it was tight and it was it was uh, close knit. Um, and amongst all that, I had some really good mentors in the, in the scientific community. Um, some eminent mycologists in British Columbia, 
um, guys like Paul Kruger, the ex-president of the Vancouver Mycological Association, and uh, or, or society rather, um, Andy McKinnon, Shannon Birch. Uh, these, these are um, some of the some of the eminent mycologists, ecologists of of our province who were working uh, at higher levels to get. Uh, mushrooms recognized as an important non-timber forest product that they are. But there were concerns about sustainability, about over-harvesting. And in this whole cash economy that I was talking about, um, tax-free, oh, should we, we should tax those bloody pickers just, you know, raping the forest. Well, you know, those bloody pickers, a lot of them were, were dirtbags who would be, you know, breaking into your car if they didn't have this, you know, as, <laughs> as something. Well, um, you know, it, so it's it's like, funny ties to you when you were up there. I, I was in I was in New Hazelton in 1994. I, was, I, I did a biology degree yeah. and was, was working in forestry, doing small mammal inventories up there. And and I remember seeing the mushroom buyers, and they'd have guys standing there with Defender shotguns. Uh, that's right. Uh, that's right. The I don't remember that. Yeah, oh, I like, remember yeah. that. I remember that. shortly. The, I think it was the summer. Uh, uh, you know, later in the season that that I was there, it was around 94, maybe 96, sometime. Uh, there was a murder, you know, at, at, uh, at the zoo. I mean, they called it the zoo, Cranberry Junction, you know, the Hazleton area. Um, you know, uh, back in those days, there was a, a surplus of habitat and a, and a shortage of pickers and, um, and uh, no shortage of demand because the, it coincided with the, um, I mean, I can go back to Betty Shore, Betty's best. She really started the pine mushroom buying industry in the late seventies here and out of Pemberton, Whistler, uh, she had Japanese contacts. And, and so that they realized that, Oh, this North American Matsutake is, is the same. Well, it's not scientifically, but for all intents and purposes, culinarily speaking, it's, it's, uh, it's equivalent to the Japanese Matsutake at the time, Japanese, um, habitat, you know, was diminishing due to, well, people mostly and, uh, and loss of habitat through various natural agents. And here we had this abundant habitat and what we lacked was a real distribution network. And Betty helped set that up, that whole roadside buying, you know, uh, mushroom station. Uh, all along, we had a domestic market for uh, morels and chanterelles, yeah. but it was really just um, pick well, to picker to the consumer kind of a market this yeah. was we were, they were filling 747s full of well, pine mushrooms and shipping back, them off. yeah back in the early mid 90s too that's when the japanese economy was just booming i don't know if you recall that too so there was they had no end of money to spend back then i think it's probably changed now but uh yeah that the japanese were actually uh influenced a lot of uh british columbia economic uh activities including log house building things like that all through that period so yeah, yeah, that that definitely uh, enforced you know, well. mushrooms got wrapped up in that for sure. Well, they did, and you know, it really struck me. This one image was, uh, you know, that that mushroom that you might get five dollars for that really beautiful number one pine mushroom. Uh, within three days, that mushroom has gone on a on a you know jet airliner across the Pacific, and it's landed in a Tokyo downtown Tokyo market where there are auctions, and Japanese businessmen would be paying, I don't know what the hundreds of yen, uh, the, the uh, conversion is, but, you know, equivalent of, of 100 US dollars at the time for the, for a singular prime uh, mushroom. 
So, and then pickers got wind of that and they're all getting ripped off and they always do and they always will, but that's the nature of it. Um, the middleman got involved and, and things changed. It evened out. Um, but, you know, and then we have a year like last year, uh, surprise showing for pine mushroom. Oh, it was the best pine mushroom year I've, I've noticed in after, years. I mean, they were after everywhere. A drought, after, uh, you know, what was just the heat dome, you know, might have been mushrooms last gasp with climate change but uh you know they did have a have a good showing and um our area had some of the the best quality and abundance and so the prices were were pretty good in the 20 to 30 dollar uh plus range for and sustained for for quite a while so uh, some pickers did quite well yeah, it. I was seeing pine mushrooms. I've never seen them before. It was it was pretty remarkable oh, fall. That was the video you sent me, right, of uh, of your daughter. Yeah, that that was one of our well known pine mushroom spots. We discovered that oh, a few okay. years ago, and uh, you know, it, it's a pretty fabulous area for pines. It's kind of a really strange little area that nobody goes into, but as everybody says, I guess about their mushroom areas. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so so Tyson. Okay, so now what are you like? What's your occupation now, and like what what are you uh, what are you primarily doing? Well, uh, <laughs> oh, a little this, little that, you know. Occasional acid flashback. Um, sorry, <laughs> quote the Big Lebowski a little bit too often. Um, no, uh, uh, well, I, I I carry on. I I just I find I go smaller and smaller because I've I've put names on most of the bigger fungi around me. I mean. Fungi in British Columbia, estimated 18,000 species, of which we've documented about 3,300. These are estimates. Well, we know what we've documented, but um, so there's a, there's a lot of work to do. But uh, And then with the molecular work, so a lot of what we thought we had was named after European species. Take morels, for example. Uh, we had two species, you know, the yellow and the black up till very recently, you know, um, relatively recently, and, and DNA is just shaking everything up. So now we're we're in the dozens of species, and they're in clades. And uh, so there's lots of work to be done, and it's coinciding with uh, a surge in popularity. Um, and availability of information has never been uh, as ready as it is now. So you have people... Um, getting really knowledgeable in a short period of time. Plus uh, guys like me doing like, uh, you know, mushroom festivals and, and um, uh, teaching classes and things like that. There's, there's way more opportunity now to learn. Uh, but for myself, um, I, I'm going smaller, you know, I, I'm going into, into stuff that is, is microscope oriented and DNA oriented. So I collect things to, uh, that will be used eventually to describe new species or to rework um, the species concepts we have. An example is the pine mushroom. I, I, on one of those collecting trips in 1999, I was up in uh, uh, the Valmont area with with some, some good mycologists, and we were we were collecting. Uh, we, were, we were what did Andy McKinnon dub it? The, uh, a myco blitz, you know. Uh, or a Pilzkrieg, <laughs> like the Blitzkrieg. He called it a Pilzkrieg. Pilz is German for mushroom, and uh, and we would we would go in there and just collect and collect and collect, trying to get specimens that have contributed to this number we now have for for BC. Uh, one of those specimens, I, 
you know, one of the first things I ever, uh, they had my hand held as I collected mushrooms and identified, and I knew what a pine mushroom was. So I put it in the herbarium as under my name at the UBC herbarium, Tricholoma um, magnavalaria, as we knew it then. Um, it's a mushroom, as many are in North America, that's gone through a lot of name changes. It used to be Armillaria ponderosa. And now it is, and then it was Tricholoma magnavalari, which just means big veil. And uh, fairly, like 2017, maybe, um, some researchers started, well, what? let's look at the uh, molecular level here. And they renamed it. They renamed our West Coast North American pine mushroom, Tricholoma murillianum, after uh, a famous mycologist, Mural. And that... Uh, that really stoked me because they went to drawers in various herbaria to get samples. And one of the mushrooms they chose was one I collected from Jackman Flats in Vailmont 99. I thought, wow, I really did something. I contributed to uh, taxonomy and that's where I'm at now. And I mean, that was just one of example of, of where I'm going with, um, with this stuff is just, um, you know, uh, smaller and smaller looking at finer details, and trying to trying to explore this this incredibly diverse and complex kingdom we have around us well i I can see that too i think that's the natural exploration i mean i'm at the stage you were at uh, presumably decades ago you know when i started looking at mushrooms seriously like i'd picked morales for probably 20 years because i knew what they were but i think like a lot of people that don't really know a lot about mushrooms. Mushrooms were mystical uh, and kind of scary. You know, you're, you're, they're, they're, they're hard to understand. They're alien. They're just, you're kind of scared to pick anything because you've heard the horror stories about poisonings, things like that. And so you just, I think a lot of people have a vague interest, but are a little bit intimidated by them. And you we start. We call that fungophobia. Right. That's right. And I would say. Which would, is inherited. From our British roots, you know, a lot of right. If you, the rest of Europe and Asia, I mean, they you don't have to teach wild edible mushroom courses. They're taught by their grandparents, you know. So yeah, we, we're actually the anomaly, U.S. and and uh, you know the Commonwealth and and British uh, heritage folks are are we've been burdened with this stigma. But that also makes them kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's no. It's interesting you say that. I've I've actually read that elsewhere. But you know, the thing that happens though, as I'm sure you you know, is that once you start to learn about mushrooms and you, you're out in the field and you start putting names to these mushrooms, and I mean, if you like eating mushrooms like I do, you start learning about which ones are edible and where they are and when they are and that sort of thing. All of a sudden, the the uh, you know the mystery slowly starts to to fold back a little bit, and you you know, you're able to confidently go out and, and, uh, and start identifying some mushrooms with confidence. And the, and, and that just seems to go on and on. It's a rabbit hole. And I, and I'm, I'm just plunging down the rabbit hole. I've been doing it about six years, fairly seriously, but mostly edibles. Although I'm, I do t- like you Tyson, I take pictures of lots of different mushrooms. I just, I find them beautiful. I mean, some of them are just unbelievably gorgeous. Well, I think, and, I think you nailed it. Like the mushrooms appeal. Why, you know, why do they appeal to me? I think they appeal from from so many different uh, sensory and stimulatory angles. Like there's the the, the pure aesthetic. Uh, I find them gorgeous. Like they, they come in all shapes, sizes, colors, forms, um, and, and of course the the culinary uses and the medicinal uses. Uh, mushrooms don't really care what name you put on them. I mean, for the average picker, a morel is 
is it morel? It doesn't matter. What matters is the ecology. Where do these kind of morels go? Where do those ones go? And when right. did they show? And and how? And that's there's no substitute for just boots on the ground and time in the forest and people you hang out with, and uh, and then and then learning how to use them safely. Obviously, I mean morels are all are toxic uh, raw. And, and many mushrooms are, they need to be well cooked. Uh, now, and some people have sensitivities, but then there's the medicinal side. So there's there's all, all these different uh, attractions to me in, in fungi. But, you know, now it's I, I tend to go with just the intellectual, the academic side. What, you know, I, I want to put a name on it, but it, the mushroom doesn't care. Right. <laughs> no, and I know what you mean about the ecology too. It's like when, once you start, once you get into the mushroom foraging rabbit hole, as I said earlier, you, 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 you look at the forest differently. Like I've been, like I've worked in biology and forestry. I've been a hunting guide. I do a lot of, you know, hunting, berry picking, hiking, exploring. I've always been into that. And, and really it wasn't until I started foraging for mushrooms that I looked at the forest floor with the detail I do now. And once you start doing that, then you start actually really noticing the differences between the types of forests and what a healthy forest looks like versus one that's unhealthy, the type of fungi you find in a, in a healthy versus what I consider unhealthy forest, my forestry training. And, uh, you know, the importance of old growth forest, you know, you get into some of these, these just mystical old growth stands with, you know, heavy moss and, you know, after a, a several days of rain and just the proliferation of these multitude of species of mushrooms exactly that's it i mean that's the buzz that that is that is exactly the buzz i get from mushrooms is is what they teach me about the forest and uh about the habitats and i think that's um that's true for everyone uh to me you know it's not just filling baskets sure you know at, at one point it was making some coin or or uh, feeding my family and it still is but um it's uh it's a connection with nature that they facilitate facilitate excuse me um and i think that's i think uh a lot of people especially uh, people coming from from urban places are lacking um and uh people don't readily just want to go crawl around on their hands and leave uh, and knees and and you know and sift through the leaves unless there's a reason uh, <laughs> yeah because because they they think they look crazy uh I'm, I'm so over that because I've just looked crazy, I guess, most of my life, um, collecting snails and, and salamanders and things. And, and now slime molds. Good Lord, I have a hard time explaining that to people. But when yeah, they see I, I'm going to ask you about slime molds. Let's, <laughs> let's pause that because that's interesting to me. We'll have to talk about that. <laughs> but the slime molds are the same thing. It's, it, and the fungi, they occupy all these different niches. And, and the ones, there's some that only grow in old growth. And, and, uh, it's, so they're indicators of uh, uh, of of old growthness, <laughs> and there are those uh, that only grow in burned soils. There are those that kill for us, like uh, armillaria and the honey mushrooms, which is also a good edible. Okay. I got to interrupt, Tyson, because I, I don't want to forget this thought. I was going to ask you a question about honey yeah. mushrooms since you brought that up. Um, uh -huh. That's one that I I try to add at least one mushroom to my to my uh, tool belt every every year my identification confident identification list every year and uh honey mushrooms were a year or two ago and i did it was the first mushroom i actually did a spore print with right 
uh, for anybody that's listening with a spore print, you basically take the, uh, you know, the open cap of mushroom, put it on a piece of paper, either dark or light, depending on the anticipated spore color and leave it or- overnight and then look at the spore color. And you can get, you can actually look at them under a microscope as well to look at shapes and all that. And that's more your, your wheelhouse than mine, Tyson. But anyway, the honey mushroom was the first that identified with the spore print because I was, I was really concerned about like deadly gallerina. And uh, I just wanted to make sure that I was 99% sure before I did the spore print. Once I did the spore print, I was 100% sure. But I still. And why had, is that? Why is that? What was the color? It was white. Yes. Yes. And, and white. And gallerina would be? It'd be brown. There you go. There yeah. you go. But they both grow on wood. <laughs> That's right. And, 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 you know, it's not the kind of mistake you want to make. So, like, and, and you also discovered that making spore prints is a ton of fun. It's, it's beautiful to, to see the spores that spore prints you well that's a whole other side of art with mushrooms is just making spore print art yeah yeah well if you go on my instagram which i I think only have three three posts my whole instagram but two of them are (laughs) mushroom spore prints but uh (laughs) anyway i was gonna ask you this question because i i mean really wondering about this i i didn't actually end up eating any like last year there was a ton of honey mushrooms a lot of them were on dead and dying birch and uh i've heard that about 10 percent of people uh have fairly significant gastrointestinal issues eating honey mushrooms. Is that, is that accurate in your experience? Well, here's my take on honey mushroom. I I don't eat them. I have eaten them. They are, uh, in in my experience, the number one uh, most frequent cause of uh, mushroom poisonings in the Kootenays. They're very abundant. Uh, they're also widely consumed. In some years, they're 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 uh, supremely abundant. We have about uh, seven species that we know of, uh, based on on uh, largely based on DNA work. They're 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 hard to differentiate, and and they're another group that the taxonomy has been in flux for a while. So putting names on these things and, and that that first rule I said be a hundred percent sure for me. I take it to the point where I want to you know, have a Latin name for the damn thing, um, you know, like confirmed even within the genus. Uh, and I've never been comfortable with that, but the reason, uh, there are individual sensitivities and people are just allergic. These are bags of chemicals, but the reason most people, um, get sick from honey mushroom is they're undercooked. So any wild mushroom for the first time, uh, you, you consume it, you should, you should cook it well. And here in the Slocan Valley, we have a, a you know, a, a lot of a Russian descendant people and um, the Dukobar community. And they were, uh, honey mushrooms are, are one of their favorite foraged foods. I, I learned from them, they call them obchiniki. Probably not pronouncing that right. Or stumpinis. I think it's more of Italian, but it's because they grow from stumps. Obchiniki means, I believe it means community in Russian. And that's, that describes how these honey mushrooms always grow in clusters and large. Yeah. And you see the deer often eat the tops of the moth. Well, a lot of people, and I, I've had a lot of calls, guys, you know, call me up, say Tyson, I, I, I think I remember you saying, you always got to cook these things really well. <laughs> I just ate a bunch and I'm feeling terrible. Well, yeah, you're going to feel terrible uh, out of both ends for a long time. Um, and that's your biggest risk is, is, uh, uh, your, your gastro uh, right enteritis or whatever the, the condition is where where you become dehydrated it, the the russian community taught me you 
parboil them first for a few minutes. Then you fry them till they pop, <laughs> like silly sizzle. And so I've done that, I, you know, and they're actually quite a textureful and wonderful, just mushroomy mushroom. And they, right. there's nothing wrong with them um, f- from my perspective. It's just, I, at the same time, I'm finding tons and tons of honey mushrooms. I'm finding blue chanterelles. I'm finding golden chanterelles. I, I, you know, I'm finding more, more choice edibles. I'm finding the things that are are unique and flavorful and gourmet, but that's because I can find those things. But for the average paper, just going out and you're getting skunked, man, fill your basket full of honeys, but, but, but pick them when they're young. Okay. And, uh, and do parboil them first and then fry them. And they can, they retain retain their texture really nicely and, and they're quite flavorful. So nothing wrong with them. That's a good tip. I'm going to try that in this fall if we have another abundant season of honeymoon. I'll boil them for, for a while and then I'll strain them. Then I'll fry them and I'll, I'll see how I fare. But uh, I, so, got, I, got a, I got a question regarding sure. edibility. I, I'm a brand new to mushrooms. I, I can, I'm confident on the shaggy mane and the morel. And the one, one thing you constantly see on the forums is that you, if, if you're going to have a shaggy mane, you cannot have alcohol with them. Any truth to that? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I can never give a hundred percent. Some people do have uh, sensitivities when they combine alcohol and uh, copernoid mushrooms. So we call those all copernoid mushroom shaggy mains. They're in, they're the uh, one of the last remaining um, members of the Caprinus genus. Now there's uh, copernopsis. Atramentaria, which is the alcohol inky cap, and that actually has a chemical in it that reacts with alcohol and makes one ill. They've subsequently done tests, and I am not a copernoid guy, and I, I, I can never remember which. There's basically three main um, genera within the copernoid mushrooms, Caprinus, Copernopsis, and Copernellus, and uh, I think it's only the Copernopsis that have that chemical so people claim that for shaggy mains but no i if i can't drink wine with my gourmet mushroom dinner i am not going to yeah. eat what's those the, what's the point mushrooms. then right I, yeah. that's kind of what I exactly yeah. i mean that's how you yeah. deglaze the pan no yeah. um yeah uh y- yeah i not true that they, they have not found the um like i think it's it's coprinin caprinin is the uh, toxin that was named for what was found in there. It was the same uh, chemical structure, what they use in uh, the ant abuse um, uh, to treat alcoholism. The, okay. You know, yeah. So take this pill and they're fine, but if they drink alcohol, they feel lousy. And so uh, gotcha. they dissuades them from, from drinking and uh, no, but I will say on the, on the, I just wanted to add with the um, uh, honey mushroom we're talking about same with same can be said for morels now you don't need to parboil them but um a lot of people get ill from eating morels and there are some famous uh stories of um you know high-end restaurants serving uh raw morels uh one involved a, a policeman's banquet <laughs> at a very high-end restaurant in uh in the victoria area and and this story gets bandied about a lot because it, it made all the news in um, uh, mycological circles back then. Uh, most of the guests became violently ill. And and this happens uh, here too. People just undercook their morels. 
Right. Morels are so fully, fully cooked, and there's, there's really no concern with the morels. Dry saute them until golden brown. You can't go wrong, but there are uh, many mushrooms are just indigestible raw because their cell walls are made of chitin, which is indigestible. And many, like honeys and uh, morels, they contain these, these um, gastro irritants that uh, we just don't have enzymes to break down. So the heat, heat will break those them. heat destroy those molecules. Yeah. So, so therefore, you know, general rule of thumb: cook all wild mushrooms really well. There are many exceptions, but uh, and some you don't want to overcook. But if you don't want to get poisoned and uh, and have an adverse reaction, that is a that is a good one to follow. Okay, well, this is this is a good segue into the next little section I wanted to talk about. Uh, um, so. For people that are listening to this that really have little to no experience picking mushrooms but have an interest of, in getting into it, what would say your top few mushrooms be to say, hey, start with these. You know, if you cook them, they're safe. They're easy to identify. There's no deadly lookalikes or, or poisonous lookalikes. What would you say would make that list, Tyson? Well, it depends where you are. And I would say in the Kootenays, because that's what I'm familiar with. <laughs> um, uh the foolproof five. Um, that's what I always like to, to say. It really, it changes with the, the season and uh, what we're, uh, what habitat we're in. But um, oyster mushrooms are generally quite safe. If you find a, they're, they're easy, relatively easy to identify, and there's not a lot of toxic lookalikes. There's um, a couple that are that can make you sick but not deadly sick and uh if if you tried them they would be so gross you wouldn't eat them uh it, it would be cause a burning sensation in your mouth so oysters and again another one that grows on on logs uh is hericium here we have hericium is just generally a common name for his lion's mane it has more more common names than uh than uh, even all the Latin name changes that have probably happened with it. But our, our species around here on cottonwood that we, we find most abundantly in the fall, late summer through the fall is Hericium uh, uh, coralloides. And I think it's like the conifer comb or, you know, they, they call it bear's head, lion, lion's mane works. And um, it's, it's pretty easy to identify. It looks more like coral than the coral mushrooms, which grow out of the ground. It's a brilliant white mushroom. And uh, shaggy manes, because of what they, you know, they, they like disturb habitat. They, the caps that deliquesce in the way that, that means they, sorry, the deliquescence is just when they turn into ink, you know, they auto digest themselves. Flies land on there and that's how the spores spread. Um, that's an easy one. Chanterelles, if you find a chanterelle, there are some lookalikes, but they're fairly easy with a bit of knowledge to, to differentiate. Um, Pine mushrooms are are not a foolproof mushroom because uh, there are some toxic lookalikes. Although once you've experienced the tactile, the olfactory, <laughs> and yeah. just the the whole I don't know feng shui of, of picking a pine mushroom, then you, you'll you, you'll never mistake it. But it's not it's not like oh, first time out go on you know I was I wasn't confident the first time I found a pine mushroom. Um, what else? So foolproof five. Oh, lobster mushroom around here. Lobsters are really easy. If it if it looks like the color of a lobster, smells fishy like a lobster, <laughs> and it even tastes fishy when you cook it up. You know, it's a lobster. You can't go wrong with a lobster. The only thing you can go wrong with is picking overripe ones. 
then they're infected with bacteria and so people can get sick that way. Uh, chanterelle, pine mushroom, or um, lobster, uh, morels, pretty safe. I mean, uh, there are the uh, a whole group of mushrooms called false morels <laughs> um, that have... Uh, the the real the true false morel is uh, gyromitra esculenta and uh, it goes under the name false morel or brain mushroom that one has the um uh, highly toxic fatally toxic compounds that can be destroyed through cooking and heat but still not recommended uh but the lookalikes to that one um including the verpa the the early spring morel uh thimble caps those used to be uh implicated in in along with the the gyromitra as as toxic but it turns out they're they're i mean they're in the morel family they're they're fine to eat as well so that would be the closest lookalike to a true morel and so you're you're fairly safe with morels yeah. again well cooked and even if you accidentally got a, a brain mushroom or a, or a false morel if you did really well cook it you're less likely to to suffer adverse effects so oysters, um, I'm missing a, a couple. I, I just can't think of. Uh, well, we're I, in spring now, right? In the fall, I got. I could just look over on my shelf. And go, oh yeah, it's that one. Um, I got a poster here. I mean, bolites. Bolites are, are another group that that are relatively safe. And there's and obviously the king bolete is is the uh, the most desirable gourmet one uh, of them. But we have a number of and bolites are these ones with the spongy bottoms, right? They're they're quite a robust and worldwide one of the most widely consumed of all wild mushrooms and revered particularly in italy and european countries uh and and they call them porcini or porcini what's the every country has a name for them set in france porcini steinpilz in germany um but porcini in in italy uh penny buns in the uk you know every country has a name for these things and they're uh they're they're somewhat variable in appearance but they share um pretty uniform characteristics. If you pick a bolete and the pores stain red, uh, they are toxic. There are a handful um, and there are exceptions and everything. Uh, if if the whole mushroom stains deep blue, um, they can be in a toxic group. It, you know, I hate to say it, just avoid eating all boletes that stain blue because you will uh, eliminate a few good edibles, but you will for sure eliminate um, the toxic ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I've noticed with like where I pick mushrooms, most of the bolites, if you push, like you scrape them with your thumb or whatever, give it enough time, especially on the stem, to tend to stain a little bit blue. Um, so and it could be quite a rapid staining reaction, whereas the the, the king bolete, the Boletus edulis, will not do that. Does not, yeah. Even yeah, the I, uh, species name edulis suggests its uh, culinary appeal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's so interesting that yeah. your list, Tyson, is very much you know, really the mushrooms I pick for the most part. I mean, I pick the, That's you know, what you have is my list in front of me. Well, <laughs> I, I actually have your list. And I, what I, do I have in that list? Oh, you've got a, you've got a long list and we'd have to have another hour of podcast <laughs> no, I, to go over it all. But the, I, I, I put check marks list. by all of the, uh, uh, ones that I pick routinely. And it's a small fraction of the ones you have on that list. I mean, not, not all of them are, I, I guess some of them are just medicinal, not necessarily edible for food. But uh, it made me realize I still have a long ways to go. But it, it's funny you said the lobster mushroom because when I when I moved to the Kootenays here and I got into uh, you know fairly significant mushroom picking, that was actually the first mushroom that I dove in 
to because there's just so many where I where I pick. And, so uh, and they, they they have a long season and and they're they're actually quite a delicious mushroom. I don't like they them because I don't like seafood. So I, I yeah. rarely eat them. Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I'm a seafood fan, so I like them. But you know, I find yeah. that uh, uh, some people, like my wife, had we, we cooked up some bolites or not bolites, sorry, uh, uh, the lobsters, and she actually had a little bit of an upset stomach. So maybe it was a bit of a over over ripe one past its prime but uh, probably but but i found that a number of people do have and it's mild gastrointestinal issues with lobster mushroom i've never yeah. had it but but i know uh uh you know some some uh, people who who readily and know knowledgeable folks who readily consume wild mushrooms have had that issue with yeah. them same with uh, coral mushrooms i generally uh advise against eating coral mushrooms the ones that grow in the spring there's there's some really good ones this is the, the i'm talking to pure novice here and just yeah you know, go out there you, i remember when i first started getting into eating wild mushrooms i was on the coast and and i had i had some book that said all coral mushrooms are safe so i was just going out and, and i could tell what a coral mushroom looked like i was just cooking them up you know i never never got sick well um there are a few that are are quite nasty <laughs> and so it's you know one of these things you learn over time is it's, yeah, it's almost better to be blindly naive and you hear these stories of people all the time what is this i ate it. you know they post on social media what is this i just ate some like, what oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that's not the time to be asking oh. eh? is that oh. some of the groups i'm in there's yeah. people that'll say exactly like that Tyson what is this I just tried a little bit but I spat it out and the people but the people that come out and say it's not toxic unless you swallow it well that that is actually by and large true with with okay with, uh, with with mushrooms and plants are more toxic some plants are far more toxic you you get a little on your skin and you have a reaction yeah yeah um uh you know regardless of individual sensitivities and uh and, and berries can be very toxic so uh no no you don't do nibble and spit with plants but nibble and spit is a is a is a tried and true technique oh. even with uh, our most toxic amanitas you know you take a little nibble oh, yeah. um, many of the characters like you could you can separate species just based on the the taste um the the sensation it might be peppery or burning sensation and it's just fun especially if you get that peppery burning sensation uh <laughs> in unsuspecting you know mycophiles that that are new to it all and i kind of I, I don't know I, I i still have to do it i know it's a peppery bully i still put the damn thing on my tongue and then i my you know my mouth waters for an hour and <laughs> feels like I, it feels like you put a hot you know jalapeno on the tip of your that, tongue that totally sounds uh, like something jonathan and i'd be into we're, we're well, hot yeah, hot guys <laughs> Like he, 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 you try it. Beavis and Butthead go mushroom hunting, yep. right? But um, it's fun. I don't know. I'll still do it. <laughs> no, it's that's awesome. Yeah, I've been, I've been like I, I, you know, the ones I know, I know, and then the ones I don't know, I haven't done the nibble and spit, but I've, uh, I, I smell a lot of them, and then you really get to learn some of the smells um, as well. Now, hundred percent, yeah, like scent, the uh, smell is a big feature in mushrooms. So there, I mean, and there's lots of guides out there now for mushroom foraging that you can take out in the field, like just you know field guides with with photos and ways to identify mushrooms. So one of the things that comes up though amongst mushroom foragers, and this is a can be quite a heated controversy, is they, you know, pick or cut. You know, people that are like cut the stem, or they get mad at you if mm -hmm. you don't, or, or people that don't. Now, I'll tell you my philosophy is that obviously pines. Um, 
you you have to just pick. You can't cut them or they lose their value. They need the end on them. Uh, lobsters, I don't cut either. And I, I used to always take a knife with me. And I sometimes use it for some mushrooms, but I've gotten to the point now where, for the most part, I don't cut; I just pull. What? What? It, am I doing things wrong here with some species, or does it really make a difference? Well, you want the long answer, or the short answer? Uh, the- well, for for the yeah, give give me the answer that uh, that's going to be the most useful for somebody just listening to this that's that's wondering to settle the dispute as best you can. Yeah. So if you're picking for science and you don't know what you have. It's essential to pick the entire mushroom. You need the base. If if it's an amanita, for example, the the very base of the mushroom has uh, diagnostic characteristics, and uh, it's how you find out what it's growing out of. You know, you, you want to follow it a little bit underground or through the wood, or you know what it's growing in. You need to know the substrate. This is for identification, and and then for the commercial market, as you said, pine mushrooms they're picked whole. Um, and, and it's, it's critical you do, otherwise they're, they lose their value. Um, but in, in terms of sustainability and, and ecologically and ethically, then, uh, it makes no difference. Uh, they've long, ter- long-term studies they've done in Sweden, 25 year long-term study where they, they had, uh, proper, uh, scientific sampling done, uh, picking, plucking versus cutting multiple species and uh, they found negligible impacts. The, the biggest impact within a season on subsequent productivity was from trampling, from just walking over the ground too many times. And because they did this, they, they had raised platforms. So <laughs> they would lean over these platforms and pick the mushrooms and those plots, you know, the, the, the you know, everything equal, uh, all things equal were, uh, we're less um, or we're more productive over the long run. So that's what you're doing. You're tromping on, on the babies uh, by walking over the same ground. Um, but uh, as far as cutting versus uh, plucking the, 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 with chanterelle with the single species in Oregon, uh, long-term about 15 year study they ran there, they found same thing, negligible, if not slightly stimulatory effect on subsequent production from uh, plucking the whole mushroom versus cutting. There have been theories about introducing bacteria through, uh, you know, using the same knife to cut. I don't really, I don't buy into that. Mushrooms are are bags of antibacterials in themselves, so um, they're, they're somewhat resistant. Plus, you're only just cutting one reproductive part. It's like if you cut the apple off the tree. Now that that's the analogy that that you'll see used a lot is is uh, you know the mushroom is just the sexual organ of of the uh, of the organism, which is the mycelium, which is underground or embedded in whatever substrate. So it, picture a, a tree underground, and that is, that is the organism, and it's just sending a little apple up. Now, if you dig up the ground and start exposing that mycelium to the elements, uh, you know, disrupting it, cutting the trees down that it's symbiotic with, that's going to be detrimental. Yeah. But plucking gently cover your little hole up more, more, you know, the covering your little hole up is, is more the ethics. Um, so you don't leave an unsightly, um, you know, area, you know, don't, don't trim all your pickings, you know, in the forest. Um, and also to cover your tracks. So, you know, people don't, people don't the whole, whole surreptitious yeah. nature of mushroom harvesting is, you know, I, I pick a chanterelle and I, I'll pluck and I'll, morels. 
I mean, I'll even pinch the damn things and keep one long thing uh, thumbnail, but that, that, you know, that wouldn't go so well for the uh, commercial market, but uh, uh, for chanterelles, I, I like to pluck them out because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mushroom mass in that stem underground sometimes that's good for cooking. And so I'll, I'll cut the, um, I'll cut the dirty base off. And the reason to cut that dirty base off is you don't want your dirty stem bases rolling around with all the nice caps in there. You want to keep your, your, you know, these, these are, this is gourmet food from the forest. You want, you want to treat this stuff like, like you would a, a fish you just caught, you know, you don't just throw it on the deck and leave it in the sun and, you know, go for more. Oh yeah. You, you care for it. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. care for this stuff. This is, especially if you're going to sell it to a restaurant yeah. or something. Or, well, I've, been, or I've even gone so yeah. far as to get a little, uh, little, woven basket from almost mushroom foraging just i used to put them in my pack but you'd end up squishing them right if you pick quite a few and you know you're wearing your pack it'd be too tight so i, I have a basket now and i find that really you know maintains the quality i've been rolling better. with a basket for 25 years you know i show up at the work crummy and i got my lunch box and my you know my stanny in there <laughs> you know <laughs> so what I, I i can like that's how i roll i, I have a basket everywhere i go but it, it's a great uh, and they make these really nice ones. Now you can get the cooties, you know, that are, that stand up to a bit of abuse. They, they're rigid enough, but they can, they can take being squished behind, you know, your dog and the Toyota or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, they do have a lifespan. A bucket, not very pretty, but they don't bucket with holes in it if it's really raining. And uh, for, for pines, uh, you know, or, or morels where I'm getting quantity, then um, a rigid frame pack with stacking baskets. Yeah. And then if I, if I'm putting that on, it's work, it's a different thing. And I don't, I don't like to, to work like that on my, on my, uh, on my, you know, weekend forays. I just carry a bucket. It also helps to really know your patches. So, you, you know, you can run back and make caches back at your, your vehicle. And I just don't need to pick that many mushrooms anymore. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, I do a lot of catch and release mushrooming. I just, I just go out. I, I'm so happy to see the pines are there like I thought they would be at this time of year. Uh, pick a couple for the table because really pines go, you know, a little goes a long way for it cooking. Does. Yep. And the deer love them. The, the bears love them. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, sustainability, well, that, it doesn't matter cutting or plucking, but, you know, removing that much biomass from an area year after year after year, it's going to have an impact on the ecosystem for sure. Yeah. Well, I know, I know that excitement of going to a, a pat, say a pine patch the first time during the year is to see what's happening. Right. And it, it's, it's such anticipation to see what kind of a crop's going to be there. It, it is really very exciting. And you're right. You, we definitely don't pick them all. We just pick generally what we're going to eat at a few to, to either dry or freeze. Um, now, morels on the other hand, I'm ruthless. If I stumble onto the morels, I, I am, I'm taking off shirts. If I don't have enough, uh, you know, carrying containers, I'm filling them. And that's when you find them is when you're unprepared. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> the only time I'm not ruthless is if I'm like uh, trespassing, uh, no, um, or uh, taking others out or going to places where I know others are going to pick or, or guiding classes or something like that. But if I'm going into a burn and hiking through a burn where these are an ephemeral little appearance on the landscape and, um, and, and they're so uh, prolific that, yeah, uh, whatever I can carry out, I carry out. <laughs> so Plus, we, I love them. I we love did them. that with uh, with the uh, winter chanterelles, this or yellow yellowfoot mushrooms this fall. There were so many. It was insane. And we had that's a, a good one that most people don't yeah. know. 
well, we ended up really- we ended up filling a pillowcase yeah. full, and we ended up drying them. Uh, and they they dry really nicely. They dry very quickly because they're very quite a small mushroom, and they're there's not a lot to them. But uh, you know, that's a mushroom that even if you don't like mushrooms, you're probably going to like that one. It's so mild, like it's especially fresh dried. It dried. It's a little stronger. I think find when you re rehydrate them, they have a little bit more uh, flavor than when they're fresh. But uh, uh, that was a fairly new one for me. It was the winter chanterelle. I'd that's seen a great them. one. That's, that's actually a really good one to bring up because that's, that's an easily overlooked one. They're, they're, they're quite small. They're not, they don't always have a good year. Last year was a good year. An incredible year. Actually. It was. Yeah. They were and, everywhere last year. And they last a long time and they're not, um, exclusively old growth dependent, although they, they need some, some well-decayed, um, well-rotted woody debris. So they, they tend to like more mature forest ecosystems that have that. Uh, but there, that's a mushroom I've picked in the spring. It started fruiting probably in October, November. And after the snow melts, they're still there and they're still okay. <laughs> they, oh, I know they have incredible decay resistance, you know? Yeah. No, they're, they're a great mushroom, and yeah, they're just a delicious mushroom. So um, one thing I want to touch on, I had a couple questions uh, uh, kind of unrelated. The first one I want to get out of the way here is the fly agaric or the uh, uh, amanita, which is the toadstool. That's the one that I know that one. see in pictures. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful mushroom. It's, yeah. just, it's one of the most gorgeous mushrooms. Red. It's yeah. red or orange with the white yeah. speck, like, yeah. uh, speckles on the top. That one I and uh, now that is... Even though it's an amanita, if if prepared properly, that is an edible mushroom, correct? Correct. The way to prepare it is is to boil it. There's a time. Uh, you, you can look it up. There's uh, David Aurora's, uh, you know, who wrote Mushrooms Demystified, one of the, the gurus in in um, in in mycology. Uh, he's a big fan of it and wrote an article about it. And and some others, uh, uh, other folks who are also knowledgeable folks countered that saying it still can be toxic if prepared the way he he suggests so uh do your own research that's a stupid thing to say um (laughs) my advice is and i have tried it and i wasn't all that impressed with the the cooked version uh it was a one-off and um it was a novelty food and i think in in that regard it's worth doing uh it is safe it was one that was in my time of learning and i think that's part of the the novelty thing is that most of the people who learned about mushrooms it was always had that you know poison x symbol in the guidebooks like ooh, nasty or hallucinogenic which it can be but more uh, of a deliriant kind of effect if eaten um for that purpose which would be uh just cooked regularly uh lightly or raw and uh and some people have a constitution for that and, and actually enjoy, um, they, they call it a stupid, a, a stupefant. Is that right? <laughs> Anyways, the, stupefies the consumer. Yes. It, yeah. You know, it, it, and, and there's so much variability in, in its toxicity or it's, um, it's, it, you know, it's imbibing effects from region to region. And, and so it's, it's a big part of mushroom lore for sure. Uh, I had the one time I did dabble in it when I was young and and uh, and, and highly adventurous for uh, for its intoxicating effects. Uh, I was so cautious with, and you know, I ate enough to get a palpitated heart and you know, sweaty palms and probably all psychosomatic. Uh, considering the amount I probably ate was it was quite small, but uh, I had heard 
stories subsequently from other people who ate enough to to wake up in a coma like two days later covered in you know various bodily excretions so um if that sounds like a good time go for it uh so first maybe keep that one in the lower then i I yeah but i don't recommend eating it i don't i don't think it's i don't think it's a fun high and i i think there um I, I think it's it can be eaten safely for most people if prepared right, which is by parboiling and then cooking well, similar to the honey mushroom. Right. But you want to you want to discard the water and then you want to do it. You want to boil it again for a few more minutes, discard the water, then fry it. And it, you, you go through the the recipe for doing this, and it's like, well, I burned more calories cooking this thing than I'm going to get out of well, it. Well, it, so. it it seems like there's a lot other mushrooms out there that are delicious that aren't. Uh, I'm just not much that, worse, exactly so. yeah. at that same yeah. time. And here's the thing: they they often grow in the same habitat at the same time with Boletus edulis, the king bolete. So if I see Aminium muscaria, I take photos because it's pretty as all get up. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking closely for Boletus to eat. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good tip. I actually didn't know, know that they were nope. using similar habitat. Look under cottonwoods so, by the river in the fall. You know, that's when you, you find so, those guys. Yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to do that next fall for sure. Cause we did we definitely found a few uh uh, of the garricks they're just they're such a gorgeous mushroom yeah. so i know we're coming up in an hour but i still have a couple more things i want to talk about uh briefly here one is mushroom conservation i mean uh both steve and i are pretty actively involved with wildlife conservation we you know we spend our time and money involved with that uh in, in fisheries as well and, and and but one of the things i think that flies under the radar for most people is is you know the conservation of mushrooms like you don't have a wild we got a wild sheep society in bc I, I'm not aware of any any wild mushroom society, the conservation best uh, based society in the province that there may be one. Uh, you can fill me in if there is. What what's your your feeling on the conservation of mushrooms? Let's say in British Columbia, um, especially given the dramatically, seemingly dramatic uh, increase in interest in mushroom foraging. Uh, do you think we need to do a better job in the province of of sort of cataloging, cataloging where things are, how much of, how much do we have? What's the best way to utilize this uh, and, t- and take care of it? Uh, you know, for the future. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think I, the the number one greatest threat to uh, mushroom sustainability is habitat loss, and and that's generally through um, through logging, you know, through through forestry. For most of the the wild mushrooms that I seek, which are forest based, now um, logging can stimulate crops of morels. Uh, you know they do thrive for a couple of years after in clear cuts. Uh, you guys still hear me? You're freezing a bit on me, so no, nope, hear you just fine. Okay, okay. <clears throat> for some reason, the internet seems like it's. it's um, jittery here but uh yeah I, I, there is no official conservation society and 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 mushrooms are one of the most sustainable uh harvestable you know uh wild harvestables out there really are there's even even huckleberries you know they they were super important like they demonstrated critical high energy food source for for grizzly bear mushrooms are a supplementary food source for most animals and then when you get into invertebrates, you know, mollusks might disagree with you. They're, <laughs> you're taking food away from snails and slugs. And, and we should care about that to a certain degree. But um, the biggest ethical issue with, with mushroom harvesting is um, competition with, with other harvesters. 
uh, I think the closer you are to urban centers, right? BC is a big place, but most people aren't hiking forever. Parks, you know, mushrooms, harvesting is off limits. You you could, you could pick things and and eat them just as you can uh, with berries, uh, you know, while you're in the park. But uh, even that, you might have to explain yourself if you have a basket full of mushrooms. We're not quite like they are in the U.S. We're um, like in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. I know, for example, they have a permitting system. Our only permitting system is with First Nations territorial lands where where there's commercial mushroom harvesting going on. Um, But our parks are off limits for any commercial picking. And so commercial picking... If if something's you know if there's just twenty dollar bills lying around everywhere, most people aren't just going to leave them. And they're going to do what it takes to get them, and so that it can be destructive and it, it can be just uncool for others who who want to go out and pick it. Um, but next year they'll be back. Those those mushrooms. It's not like you're destroying the. Uh, it's not like a habitat loss through forestry or private land development or any of the number of, you know, um, herbicide spraying and the things that, that go on to, to alter habitat that, that humans like to do. So, um, well, that's there's no like- conservation based to right. me, the, what I work on is, is trying to get the forest industry to recognize there's a competing value from that same plot of land. And then as as it's a public resource and one is dependent on the other resource, we need to co-manage these resources better. We, we shouldn't, uh, and this is more of a, of a, of a, of a legislating government kind of action is to not allow one industry to dominate over all the others. Right. Which has been largely the case in the province. I think with forestry, we've seen that with, you know, fisheries and some of the uh, degradation of different habitats for other things, you know, forestry seems to get the, uh, and I, and I, I worked in forestry for years. I'm not an anti-forestry guy, but I, I agree with you, Tyson. We need to have, nor am I, nor am I, I work in the industry too. We just need to do it smarter. We just need to do a little bit smarter with more, more, uh, uh, you know, in the overword, overused word holistic considerations as far as how we That's use right. the land base. And, and there's but the parallel. Uh, mushroom harvesters have been hard to uh, organize because we're all kind of individualist by nature. Uh, those making money off it are not really willing to go and share knowledge about their area. But when they see, you know, cut block ribbons around it, then they, they start acting up. <laughs> and, uh, <Right. laughs> um, and there's been, you know, um, it's, it's been a catastrophe how we've managed, uh, you know, this, the, the Kootenays had one of the most incredibly productive uh, wild mushroom areas. And, and, you know, we we're, were proud of it, but the same, on the other hand, we've just been, uh, just been, been nuking all that habitat and it, it'll take 80 to a hundred years if mm-hmm. they ever do grow back and become productive for certain species of fungi. So yeah. Oh, yeah. we need to really think about, it. and they're not, it's not like the mushrooms are everywhere, but they are concentrated and we, we can map this habitat out and we can still extract ten- some of the best mushroom areas were high grade logged. So why not uh, consider selective lar- logging these and, mm-hmm. uh, and just be smart about how we, we co-manage for these resources. Yeah. It sounds, sounds very parallel to hunting and fishing and everything that yeah. we all share the land base from that, that there, there's a problem and we all recognize it no matter how we use it. And we need to, legislate something to do better it's it's not for us it's not for our grandkids it's for their kids 
Yeah, and then timber industry is overcut. That's yeah. that's all there is to it. I mean, it, we're we're all fe- facing this fall down effect from you know a lack of uh, you know um, indefinite supply of logs. It's it's finite and. Uh, now well, you can see, you know, some of the country that's getting logged at the Kootenays now. I mean, it's it's nobody would even looked at it 25 years ago because it's so hard to get to, but it's it's all that's left, you know. And and I think we're we're starting to see that. Um, so Tyson, I know we're over an hour here, and I, I really want to ask you about your book and about slime molds before we go. So okay, <laughs> okay so tell me in uh, is is layman termish as possible. What is a slime mold, and what makes it different than uh, the other fungi? Um. Well, it's not a fungus. It's an amoeba. So it's in a completely different uh, kingdom of organisms. So, so uh, you know, Okay, so it's not, not related to, to fungi no, but, at all. But, okay. but classically, you know, it had uh, fungi or slime molds or myxomycetes as, as we, we uh, refer to them, uh, have been lumped in or studied at least by mycologists because they, they go through a similar... Uh, the uh, type of life cycle in, in producing a, um, you know, a sporulating body that, that makes spores, which are how they, they then regenerate, but um, they're actually amoebas. So they're, they're closer related to, um, you know, to an elk than they are to a fungus. <laughs> if you go back on the uh, evolutionary train there and uh, uh, slime molds are, are just really cool. They're, they're elegant. There's only a couple that, are considered food sources that get large enough. You may have seen, and they don't have uh, the most redeeming names, and most of them don't have common names. But the ones that do uh, are dog vomit slime mold, um, which is also known as a scrambled egg slime mold. Uh, a lot of people think don't like that name. I think it's kind of cool and apt. It, it does kind of look like at certain stages, like a dog just upchucked on the ground. And the other one is caca de lune, which I, I guess just literally means moon shit. Um, and it uh, looks like a a little glowing glob on on a on a tree. Those are large ones. So most of the ones that uh, are lesser studied are, are under two millimeters tall, and they form maybe uh, uh, little colonies that look like stubble on a on a underside of a log. And they go through uh, intense transformations over short periods of time through a lot of color variation. And uh, microscopically, they are extraordinarily beautiful. But even under a good macro photographer's eye, they can be brought to to focus in in ways that you you, you just you have to look at the images of, of slime molds. Um, and then ultimately, to me, is their ecology and, and how uh, how how poorly known they are. We we don't actually have a list of slime molds in Canada. Here's a whole kingdom of you know, macroorganisms that can be seen with the naked eye. Um, lichens are, are well-studied. Fungi are, are relatively well-studied. We're about 30 years behind where we are with fungi in terms of documenting slime molds in Canada. So I'm working on that. I'm working on, uh, with a, a few researchers in BC here, on producing a book, uh, trying to make it fun and, uh, and, and attractive, but also informative because... Uh, this will be the first ever, you know, slime molds of, uh, of Canada book. It'll be just slime molds of British Columbia. But every time we go out, we find species that are newly documented for BC or even Canada or North America. And uh, only because there's not so many of us doing it. <laughs> I, you just wait. A few years, slime molds, this already happening. Slime molds are becoming, you know, 
all vogue now. I'll have to find something else to study. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I thought because of the name mold that 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 they were a, a fungus, but I, I like I've seen slime molds in the forest, and uh, yeah, you're, you're you know they're one of those things that I can sort of see how they've been overlooked. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I would love to get a copy of your book. Now, is your book published now or is it, is it going to? No, no, no. This is, uh, well, we have a deadline. <laughs> but, um, uh, this will be through the Royal BC Museum. I'm working on it with uh, Ryan Duran, who's an ecologist from uh, the Kootenays as well. And Pam Jansen is from the Gulf Islands. And Andy McKinnon, who's, uh, you may know his name from the recent Mushrooms of BC book and several plant books under, under his belt as well. And uh, uh, yeah, the four of us are, are putting together this. Uh, um, first of all, every time we go out, we get a new species. It's, it's, it's hard. To, it's hard to like set a limit on how many we're going to include in this book because man, it's just like the, the work hasn't been done. Whereas the mushrooms, of BC book. Okay. We got 3,300. We can only feature, you know, three or 400. So it was a process of elimination for, for us. It's a, it's a process of continuous inclusion as we, as we look further and they're bloody hard to identify, so it takes a, a long time to get. Um, you need a microscope to get species. And there's just not a lot of literature, so we're trying to help that. We're trying to make uh, uh, make it fun and engaging. Ultimately, it's about engaging people with the you know the environment that surrounds them. So if it's one more um, excuse you need to crawl on your hands and knees and and look closely at you know rotting logs without feeling foolish, then. Uh, we, I'd be happy to help you. <laughs> well, you know, that's, you know, and I think that's fantastic because, you know, the, the more we understand about our natural world and what's out there, the more we, I think, we're apt to take care of it. And we're also more likely to notice when something has gone missing, right? Because if you don't know something's there to begin with, you're never going to know right. whether it's missing, right? So I think, and, you, and a person really exactly. doesn't know what your, exactly. uh, you know, what, the inventory. how important something must might be that, you didn't even know existed. You know, it's you don't you don't know what the important species are because some of the most important species are also the most uh, cryptic and, and ones we don't you know we don't necessarily see small species. I mean, fun, fungi are a good example. You look at the uh, you know the forest and the mycelial mats that connect all the vegetation and and uh, you know you don't see those with the naked eye unless you really look for them. Yet without those, those forests really wouldn't exist, right? So it's uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. You don't know what you have until you lost it. Uh, that might be, you know, a, a Joni Mitchell song or something. But to me, uh, I guess it all boils down to something I realized as a kid that biodiversity is cool. And that is the ultimate goal of life on this planet is to diversify. And it's the diversity of life forms that keep it all chugging along. That's the gasoline you know and, and so biodiversity is everything so what you just said and that's why i'm driven to try to put names on these things to try to figure out um the nuances between different morels maybe it matters maybe it doesn't but um the uh slime molds has been have been neglected as have uh insects as well i mean there's a whole other group there that uh i wouldn't say totally neglected at least there's uh entomologists i mean uh and you know what that means. If I told you I'm a myxomycetologist, you, you go, what's that, right? Well, it's one who studies slime molds. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and we need more of us. We need more people in doing this, this type of inventory work. And we need the powers that be to invest more in it because biodiversity is the key to life. I agree with that. Well, Tyson, um, 
Next time I see you, hopefully you'll be roaming the hills looking for morels. I know we talked a little bit about that. Uh, I hope you won't see me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm going to hold you to it. You you invited me. I'm not going to let you. Oh right. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, we'll 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 be in touch with that. Uh, so good. we'll uh, you know, we might even get some video. We won't we won't have any distinguishing characteristics of your morel locations. It'll all be very uh, very nondescript. Plenty for all this year. There's the burns. It's and it's slow to to they're slow to show up. So uh, let's let's plan for that. I I would. Very much well, enjoy that. I'll be in touch with you about that, Tyson, for sure. Um, but anyway, we're over an hour here, almost an hour and 15. So uh, we, we don't want to take any more of your time, Tyson. Uh, I'd love to do this again down the road if you're willing to come back on the podcast. I think we've got lots of stuff we could still talk about. I, uh, you know, this is such an interesting subject. I think oh, that, totally. uh, and I think, you know, more and more people are, are awakening to fungi, you know, and they're awakening to the importance of fungi and the, uh, and the, the you know the, it's such an accessible thing for some for people to go out into the forest, actually learn about forage, eat, connect to the land in a way that you really can't do unless you're fishing or hunting. I mean, it's such a it's such an easy way, in, in some sense, to all you need is a basket and some running shoes, and you can go out in the forest and walk around. And uh, you know, and, and having a, a fresh trout and uh, sautéing some morels in a frying pan. I mean, really, all you need is butter, salt, and pepper. Oh, yeah, and, you got and it. You're, uh, and whiskey, you know. <laughs> of course. <laughs> for medicinal purposes, of course, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, camping and foraging for, for wild mushrooms, it, it, they just pair well with everything. Well, thanks, Tyson. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us tonight. Thank you, guys.